and welcome to Evaluand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. So this week we're chatting with Anne K. Emery about her journeys in entrepreneurship and data viz, teaching, um, traveling, her family and social media, all those fun topics. So Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dana. So I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I think it was in 2016, an AEA conference that we had our first eval Twitter gathering. Oh yeah, I do. But you've kept that up since 2016, haven't you? I have. Yeah. But that was the first one. And there was a a small number of three of us, me, you, and one other person that came for that. Who was the other person? Now I'm blanking. 2016 was a million years ago at this point. And I think it was 2016. Um, I think it was Kim Kim Mantaruk. Yes. I think you're right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. I was just like, you were one of the first people I think I met like through Twitter, through this evil Twitter gathering type thing. So coming full circle. You know, I recently got one of those pop-ups on Twitter saying, congrats, it's your 10-year anniversary. And who knows where a decade went? You blink and it, it, goes, it just goes past. But I was reflecting on all of the friendships and just all the colleagues that I've met over Twitter, where you just start with the little things. You retweet each other. Maybe you reply. Maybe you just like something they tweeted, the simple stuff. You're not stalking them, of course. Nothing weird. But then maybe you meet up at a conference or maybe you meet up for lunch and I don't know if you know Ben Collins in the Google Sheets world. We're like business besties now. I met him on Twitter. John Schwabish, who's an economist and in data viz, I met him on Twitter. I met you on Twitter. Um, So many people. So gosh, the power of social media, right? Right. I don't, I do not think my network would be as large as it is today. If I, if I had not joined Twitter, I don't, I don't think I've been at 10 years so far, but I think uh, about four, five or six have been active on Twitter. And yeah, I, I've met a lot of great people through it. We should be getting paid to be Twitter evangelists right now, but this, this is a good ad for if people who are, if you're on the fence about joining social media, it's just so beneficial to the friendships that you might, you might make very naturally later on. Definitely. Definitely. So in, I've, in terms of social media, Twitter and all that, I've really enjoyed following your journey in independent consulting, entrepreneurship. Uh, I, you've talked about how you've started to um, share more of your family life through social media, which I've very much appreciated and how you reflected on that journey. It, Cause I know it wasn't something you started before. And actually that first eval Twitter gathering, I do remember some vivid conversations about like, don't share your, I, I still I tried to hide this one a little bit, but like your political identity, you know, uh-huh. don't share your personal stuff, like be very professional on these things. And I think we've both agreed that like, we can relax that a little bit. So I'm excited to yeah. talk to you about that and your travel and so on. But before we get into all that, I was hoping you could tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, how you came into evaluation and what you currently do. So I'm currently a data visualization designer and speaker. And I'm actually in a couple days, I'm having my work anniversary of working for myself. So I'm about to start year seven of running my own business, which is really exciting. 
And nowadays I do mostly training. Everything's online. Now, of course, I've got online courses, all of my in-person workshops for groups, they've moved virtually. Sometimes I'll do a short thing, like a 90 minute webinar that's designed to get, you know, the novices interested in a new topic like data viz. I also do a little bit of consulting where people say, and hey, I'm on board with this. I want to make a better report. I want to make a better slideshow. Cool. I can see the value in having a dashboard to get instant results out of people. We're too busy. Can you just do it for us? So it's a nice mix of teaching and doing. But I haven't always done, it's not like you just graduate high school and you're like, I'm going to go start a company. I mean, some people do that. I didn't. But before that, I've worked in a few different evaluation settings. So I actually started pure research doing NIH-funded studies in a university research center. I thought I was going to do more of your career track of being a professor, doing kind of a mix of research and teaching in a university, which is like very similar to what I'm doing now too. So I haven't actually shifted too far from that original career dream. Where else did I work? I worked in a big consulting firm. I worked in a nonprofit as an internal evaluator doing youth development work. And then I know you're also interested in youth development. That'd be it. We could talk about that for hours too, I bet. I also worked at a smaller consulting firm helping foundations that were funding those nonprofits. So it's been a variety of work settings. And as, as you know, kind of this very unexpected shift from being an evaluator and a researcher to being more in the data viz world too. Well, I think that's one thing why I like evaluation so much is that the, the career opportunities are so vast of what you could do. And I, I did not think I was going into academia at all, actually. Uh, this was not on the agenda for me. I thought I was going to go more independent consulting or join an, an evaluation firm of so, some sort. So, you know, the, the opportunities are endless for us. That's so I'm so kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious how you transitioned from more doing evaluation research work to what you currently do now. It was so gradual at first. I remember when was my very first conference presentation? 2009, 2010, 10 years ago at this point, it was my first American Evaluation Association conference, my, my first conference ever. And I remember my company at the time, you know, they had budget constraints like anybody. So the general guideline was, if you want to attend a conference, you need to be presenting. So my colleague and I really wanted to go to AEA. We'd heard good things about it. I didn't know, really know what evaluation was, even though I was doing it. I was just kind of in my bubble with my 10 or so people on my team. But I hadn't met, you know, the larger community yet and wanted to. So we just, uh, what did we submit on? Dashboards. Dashboard automation, though. Because 10 years ago, it was a really big deal to do anything besides a technical report. That was the norm. In some workplaces, that still is the norm, like the very, very detailed technical report. And we just stood up and said, hey, what if we have a technical report? This was an education evaluation, but we also have a one-pager for each of the 30 schools in this project so that they have their own data. And what if instead of tediously copying and pasting them from Excel into Word, Excel into Word, every stupid little percentage at a time. What if we just write some VBA code behind the scenes real quick? It was like this many lines of code. I didn't do that. My coworker knew how to do that. And what if we make a dashboard? And that was like, it was truly groundbreaking at the time. So I remember just getting 
a little bit kind of getting my feet wet in evaluation, getting my feet wet in data viz and reporting. That was just, you know, we all do reporting and sharing results of some kind. So it's just kind of early on. I was just a little bit into data viz, a little bit into data viz. Didn't know it was called that. I don't think I heard the term data viz until... 2012, 2013, I just thought it's graphs, it's reporting. Like I didn't know it was called that. And then go forward a couple more jobs. When I worked with foundations, I would usually help them train their nonprofits. So the foundations would be giving out this big grant, $20 million, $30 million to fund all of this really good work in the community. And they wanted to make sure that their grantees were set up for success, that they had a logic model, that they were collecting some data, maybe some feedback surveys. Maybe they were doing some focus groups. Maybe they were presenting their own one-pagers on their results. So I would do trainings both in person and virtually for those nonprofits. It was, you could call it capacity building sometimes because some of it was really informal, but some of it was formal. Like I would be with them teaching workshops. And I remember just thinking, this is my favorite thing in the world. I really just like working with these nonprofits, teaching them more than I liked actually writing the report or doing other types of work myself. And that was part of my job. I don't know what percent, let's say a day a week I got to do that. And I just thought, I want to do this five days a week. I don't want to just do this one day a week. Where is that job? And at the time I was, I was working and doing my master's degree at night and people kept asking me, what's next? When you graduate, what's next? And I really liked my job. I had this perfect 20-minute metro commute in downtown DC. It was was such a good setup. My coworkers were fantastic. I still keep in touch with them. I liked that job. I didn't envision myself going anywhere different when I graduated. But because people kept asking me this, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? I was like, I don't know. I guess I'm supposed to change jobs, but I didn't know what was next. So I, I had seen previous coworkers take two different paths. They either went to work at a foundation, usually one of our clients would like call them up. Hey, you do really good consulting work. We have a full-time opening. Do you want to come? And they'd kind of just get poached out of our group, which, you know, that's cool. Like that's a great career path for them. And then I feel like the other half, when they were ready to move on, they went independent. And I'd never, I, just like you didn't think you were going to be a professor, I didn't ever think I was going to be self-employed. I thought I was going to be a professor for many years, or then I was just going to do evaluation in a consulting role. But I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I was just kind of naturally, because I'd been blogging for a couple of years, my name was just slowly getting out there as somebody who did data viz and liked training on it. So it's starting, I was starting to get invitations to go do trainings or do paid conference talks. So I started using my sick days with my job's permission and, and vacation days too. I think we had like 10 vacation days. So I used all those up going to do paid workshops. And then I thought, well, I, can't, I, guess, I guess I can't do any more. I'm out of sick days and out of paid days. And I remember talking to my husband like, someday when we're 65 and I retire, I'm going to do this data viz training thing full time someday. And he was like, you're 28. That's a long time to wait. <laughs> that's, a, that's many decades away. That's not just like two years away. You're really going to put off your dreams for decades really like he gave me a good kick in the butt right like i thought better of you like you're so brave what are you waiting for and i was like i don't know i guess i should do this now why why would i put my life on hold i don't know cuz i had a good job like when you have a, a good setup right it's a little risky to leave something that's very good right. like hoping that the next thing and this unexpected thing you never anticipated doing was better but i pulled the trigger and then 7 years later the rest is history <laughs> 
That's awesome. Um, you brought up a little bit of like how you hadn't even heard of data visualization until 2012, 2013. Isn't that around the time that the data viz checklist with Stephanie Evergreen, right? You two put that together? Our, I think our first version of that was 2014. We probably started drafting it a year earlier. You know, Stephanie was really busy. I was really busy. It takes a while to get things like that. It's not like you sit down in one hour and you come up with a checklist. Definitely not. Um, it was, it was a, this months long or maybe year long process. And yeah, I mean, I was, it was doing data viz, but you know, data viz has been around forever. Like people right. have been graphing data for forever, but I just don't think that the term data visualization was popularized until, you know, not within the past decade, that term became more, more normal. And, you know, that was a buzzword for a while. Dashboards, that was a buzzword for a while, probably 20, 2009, 2010, probably infographics were a buzzword. What's a buzzword now? Big data, data <laughs> science. Yeah. yeah. So I hadn't, I hadn't really been aware of that term and realized like, oh, I'm making graphs. Some people call this data visualization. Like I didn't know, um, but it sounds fancier when you call it data viz for sure. That's interesting. Um, I, I just had a paper accepted that's on data visualization on the role of titles in data visualization, right? One of the, the items in the checklist is to have informative titles that really convey the message. And so we kind of wanted to test that assumption or a guideline. And one of the, the last comment that they were like, you need to add this in for us to like fully accept was you need to incorporate a definition of data visualization. I was just like, doesn't everybody know what data visualization is, but perhaps that, that, uh, you know, uh, it is considered jargon still. <laughs> I've got the answer for you. You know, who has the best definition? I'm literally sitting at his books. They're propping up my microphone. Um, Alberto Cairo, functional art. I think he, he's got probably the best definition. I can't quote it, but there's some paragraph in the, in the first couple of pages about what it is that I would have I pr this is probably what the little sticky note is sticking out of my book. Anybody <laughs> listening to the podcast version, they're like, what is she talking about? She's a crazy person who has books on her desk. Yes. yes. Well, those of true, you listening, um, I will put the link to the video of this, but we are recording via video and we're going to have a video and audio version of this. So if you want to watch us talk instead of listen to us talk, that option will be available. <laughs> So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your job career has shifted a little bit since you've gone independent. It's kind of, so my friend, Nina Sabari, are, are you familiar? Yeah. Um, I've heard her name. She's at youth development too, isn't she? Youth evaluation? She does a little bit of everything. So she's okay. all, she, well, she was with you in DC. I know you're not in DC any longer. She, she I think she does do a little bit of youth development. She does international work. She does a little bit of everything. She's a bit more generalist in that regard, but she's doing her dissertation on entrepreneurship and how it differs from independent consulting and uh, what, what is called moonlighting, right? So something like I would be, if I were to do any of the work that you're doing, it'd be moonlighting because I've got my full-time career job that pays for stuff. And this would be extra stuff. That's not part of my normal gig right so I'm like kind of interested in like this difference that she's been posing of the, you know the difference between entrepreneurship and independent consulting and and the point I think from her on entrepreneurship is that it's you're intentionally creating your own business it's not really doing business as not really thinking about it as a consultant role, but really I have a business and I want to grow the business itself. So I'm kind of curious, does, does that resonate with you? And how, how did that kind of transition work for you? Yeah. 
you're going to laugh, Dana, because you're a data person too. So you'll laugh with me, not at me, but I literally <laughs> have a spreadsheet of kind of my entrepreneurial journey because people ask me about this a lot, a lot too. They're like, like, what do you mean you run a company now? What do you mean you just, you had a regular job like not that long ago? What is that transition like? So in my spreadsheet, I like literally have, you know, how my identity has shifted over the years from evaluator at the beginning because I had evaluation contracts. I was a, you know, a one woman evaluation team. I guess I could have in hindsight hired a research assistant to help us some parts, but it was it was perfectly fine to do it all myself at the time. I remember, yeah, one of my first projects was a two-year evaluation of a workforce development program at a nonprofit in the DC area. And I did that project and it was fine. It went really well. I still keep in touch. Actually, a lot of the two of the four staff have taken online training now with me. And I'm like, that's so cool. Like, good to see you here, Juan. And uh, yeah, anyway, great project. But I realized a lot of people are really good at evaluation. There's thousands of us. AEA alone has, what, 8,000 members. There's Canadian members. There's people all over the world who do really good evaluation work. My specialty, though, is data visualization. There's a huge demand for, like, wait, wait, wait. We have all this data. What do we do with it? We feel like we're drowning with it. We have so many spreadsheets. We have so many databases. Like, how do we dig through this? And I can, like, it's challenging, of course, but it's like, how do you dig through that and find, like, some clear takeaway messages and, and findings out of there? And it just it kind of got to the point where it was impractical to do evaluation and be turning down all this data visualization work that I was really passionate about too. So it just kind of became this natural shift of like, instead of doing evaluation, I was helping evaluators do data visualization. And then I think my identity, so I started with kind of, you know, way back, I started as like, I'm a researcher who's going to like someday do a PhD program. And then I was an evaluator. And then I shifted to more like, okay, I'm a data visualization designer, information designer, who knows what that correct term is. You kind of make up your, your roles and your titles as you go. And then it was truly only about a year ago. So until what year six of my business that I shifted to thinking, oh, I'm actually this entrepreneur that people talk about. That's, that is actually me. And the turning point for me was I was in a book club of fellow data people who are self-employed and we would read a book every quarter and we read Company of One by Paul Jarvis. And Paul Jarvis has some type of, it's like Google Analytics, but controls Fathom Analytics is his company. And he runs this tech company, but he also helps people run businesses so, you know, he's made this, like, I don't know how profitable, probably many millions of dollars a year running this tech company by himself with a couple of contractors here and there. And he talks about in the whole book, just the value of staying small and lean and nimble and how it used to be, honestly, I think for bragging rights, people would say like, well, how many employees do you have? That was the measure of how successful your business is. And he, he just gave everybody new metrics, like... <laughs> I can geek out with you, right? Because you're, you're in evaluation too. Like a logic model of what you're aiming for, what your outcome of working for yourself might be. And he just kind of listed these, all of these other outcomes that are, are very, very good goals. Like how much time do you have with your family? Are you able to pursue what you really want? How profitable are you? Not just your gross income, but how much of that do you keep? How many hours a day do you have to work? Are you able to scale? Can you only make more money by... Are you just being paid by the hour? 
And if you take an hour off, you're not getting paid or do you have passive income coming in because let's say you own a a tech company on the side. So when I heard that and I was just so persuaded by the idea, like small is amazing. Staying small is great. So we can talk all about my setup now. It's, it's intentionally very lean. It's me plus a five hour a week assistant in past years though, I did have a team of about at any given time, probably 10 subcontractors where I bring in a project and I'd say, okay, this person's going to create custom icons and this person will create the cover and this person's going to help with some data analysis and this person's going to do this piece. And I would be coordinating all of this as I flew around the world teaching data viz workshops. And it just got to be way too, just too many details. It just wasn't fun. It was like, wait, I'm, it's like texting a contractor as I'm boarding the plane to Africa and I'm not going to be available for like the next 40 hours as I'm flying. It just, it wasn't easy. So I focus on training a lot now, not just because I love it, but because to save my sanity, right? To keep things really easy. But yeah, I don't consider myself moonlighting. I'm not, I don't consider myself a consultant. I'm definitely not a freelancer. I'm not a freelancer who just does like a couple projects here and there. This is definitely a company with a, a clear structure and processes and automations. We have, I have a workflow for everything. Like I do this and my assistant does this and then I do this. And then like, and I, of course we try to eliminate as many manual things as possible too. Right. Which I think, I mean, I'd love to talk more about the automated processes. Um, and I know, or I'm guessing the, the route towards these online courses that you provide is one of the ways to get more of that passive income, right? Absolutely. Um, I will say like everything you say just reminds me of Nina as well and the way she works as well. I, I'm going to have to introduce you to because like she's logic modeled her life. I think she did that early in grad school. And then she had a, a great presentation um, that she provided, presented to I think American University, uh, their graduate program that she was also a part of and now she's teaching at right now. She uh, talked about like the yearly progress of her own company and like she's very been very intentional about entrepreneurship like building her company and just it's so cool to see the parallels between what you just said and how she's doing it too and like aspirational work goals type thing she sounds like my new best friend so please do introduce us so um yeah I would like to talk about those online courses and and how like how'd you get into them? And like, how, how, like, what would be like your number one tip for somebody interested in doing this? This is something that I know I'm personally, I'm kind of like struggling with this because in one regard, I, I teach, right. And like my university brings income like through the students I bring to the program. And so like, I don't know to what extent I feel like I can or should be put, providing these personally. I, I'm doing one right now. Um, but I also don't teach it right now. Like I'm doing one with David Kais um, for the R for the rest of us on inferential statistics. That'll be coming out in about a month and that's been great, but I don't teach R currently. So like, it doesn't feel like I'm taking away from the university or anything. So I don't know. I'm just kind of curious, like how you got started. Yeah. The overlap between your day job and what you teach. I'm not quite sure on that one, but I can definitely help you with the, like, how did I get into them and some tips for people getting started side. So how I got into them was, you know, a decade ago, I started teaching about data viz very, very informally. This was like pre my first AEA presentation, very, very informally at like literally brown bags at staff meetings, which at the time was a huge deal. Cause I'm what, 22 and I'm my boss the VP of our company is saying 
Hey, you actually know how to do things that other people haven't figured out yet. Can you come lead a brown bag for all 20 or 30 people on our floor who have decades of experience? So I just got started. I mean, that was pretty small at the time, right? Now I speak in front of hundreds of people sometimes. So I started there and then kind of word spread. Oh, Anne can do this thing. Anne knows this Excel shortcut. Anne knows this PowerPoint trick. Anne can take a spreadsheet and turn it into a dashboard fairly seamlessly. Like it just kind of came naturally to me. I just assumed it came naturally to everybody. Like how lucky am I that it doesn't, you know, cause I'll be employed for a while that way. Whenever I hear somebody say like, Oh, statistics, I hate that. I'm like, I'm actually really glad that you feel that way because I love statistics. Right? And like, Those are my favorite classes in school. So good. You know, not everybody needs to love statistics. It's definitely not natural to people. Oh my gosh. I watch my students navigate Excel and it just kind of breaks my heart. How many shortcuts they're missing of making things a lot easier for themselves. I have, I will give you some blog posts after we, after we finish recording of, of some, some of my favorite how-to tips. So you can pass those on, save them some time. Yeah. So I remember like word spread that Anne can teach about data and data viz and people started asking me, Hey, can I take you out for a beer and you give me some one-on-one tutoring sessions? I've got a job interview coming up. I know that I'm going to be tested on data. Can you help me? And then people would email me, oh, I have this one question. Can you help me? And I started blogging around the same time. And I had some very informal YouTube videos at the time. And I, I actually started YouTubing back in 20, 2011, 2012. I don't know. In the That was pretty early for YouTube. I started YouTubing to answer those questions I was getting. Like a coworker would ask me a question. My friend from college might ask me a question. Maybe my professor in my master's program would ask me a question. And I would just think, I'm getting these same questions over and over. I guess this is something everybody struggles with. I don't have time to meet with everybody one-on-one because I'm taking two classes a semester and working in a very demanding job in downtown DC. I I just, I can't go out for a beer and help everybody. So I would just go home at the end of a long day. It'd be like 11 PM and I had no webcam at the time. I had definitely had no mic at the time. And I would just record a little two to five minute answer to their question. Like, Oh, you have a question about how to make a pivot table. You know, here's how you do it really quickly. Here's the five minute explanation. And then I loved doing that. I just, I found it, found it so gratifying to teach. Many people enjoy teaching. It's, it just feels really good as a service, you know, to the community to help other people like that. It gives you a good, this is really cheesy, but it gives you a really good purpose in life. You know, you're like, okay, my work matters. I'm helping people save time and making their lives easier by teaching them tips and tricks. And I remember when I went solo then, I remember knowing like, blogging and YouTubing are going to stay a core of what I do. The teaching aspect is always going to be central. I was very, very clear on that. But at the time, YouTube was all that existed. Online course platforms hadn't really been invented yet. I'm on Teachable now. Teachable wasn't invented till 2014. So I was YouTubing for a couple of years just for fun before this platform existed. A couple of years later, Chris Lessie, freshspectrum.com, you know Chris from AEA, he was like, wow, you actually enjoy being on camera. Most people hate it. What if instead of blog posts or in addition to blog posts, you make an online course? And I was like, well, I have an online course. People could watch every YouTube video. And he was like, but those aren't in order. They don't have supplemental materials. They're really short. People want longer things. They want to be able to download a spreadsheet and follow along. They want an ebook. They want handouts like you know, make it an entire training experience from start to finish. 
that saves people time. It just, it fast forwards them. That's the value of a course over just mm-hmm. random YouTube videos. It's the shortcut. You know, you can sit down and in an hour or in an afternoon, you're, you have a solid grasp on a skill thanks to a course. So Chris planted this idea, but I was really busy. Like my, my company from day one, like always, always so busy. This idea of feast or famine of like, you don't have a lot of work and then you have too much. You know, I've never had that. It's always been like, oh my gosh, my to-do list is 50 miles long every single day, I feel like. And that's a, that's a good problem to have. I know there's like tiny little violins playing in the <laughs> background. But I remember having this idea planted from Chris. Thanks so much to Chris for giving me this idea. I wouldn't have come up with it by myself. And then a couple of years later, a couple of years, you know, time's going by. I'm still kind of thinking about this as a possibility. Don't have the time. Finally... Uh, in spring 2018, I went for it and I went for it in the most, gosh, like basic sense possible. I made a free course that I still have now, but at the, at the time, this mini course was, it was literally just seven random YouTube videos I had. It was just like, here's this video on icons and here's this video on data storytelling. And here's this video on customizing your grasp for your audience. And here's a video on the 33 one approach to reporting. I just took kind of my favorite seven pre-existing videos and packaged them together in a course so people could watch them start to finish. I had all those videos and blog posts already, but you know, some people have just started following my blog or they would have just subscribed to a newsletter. They hadn't seen those videos from years ago. So just packaging them together was such a value add, I thought, to do that. And since then, I've re-recorded that course and it has a very, it's so good now. It has a very clear like beginning, middle and end. There's activities with each one. It has a perfect flow. It's, it's recorded as its own mini course now. So I made my free course and then I started making paid courses that were just translating what I'd already been doing with clients during in-person work, just doing the virtual version of that because not everybody's going to fly me out to teach all 30 of their staff in their conference room. Some people are self-employed. You know, they are their own team or their own company. People are in other countries. People, um, they don't have one office for their staff. Maybe they have lots of offices around the country or world. So getting their staff together for on-site training is not feasible. Like there was, I felt like there were so many benefits just also offering that online. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And now I have six full-length courses that are the equivalent of about a two-day workshop. And they have added over the years office hours, live sessions, eBooks, chances to submit their work and get feedback. Sometimes we send people t-shirts and swag now. We didn't do that in the past. So it's just grown, you know, very, very slowly, intentionally, but slowly. That being said, although I have six full courses now, that is not a realistic starting point for anybody. (laughs) I recommend people start exactly how I did, where you just make a really short course 30 minutes, 60 minutes on a topic you've already presented about. So like Dana, Mm -hmm. you've presented a billion times, I'm sure, in different settings, not just in the courses that you teach at the university, but think of all the conference presentations you've done over the years. You have so many presentations that are already developed. So you just start with, you know, the audience's favorite presentation, the one that you know people love every time or your favorite that you're really excited about. And maybe it's, you know, maybe a 30 to 60 minute talk. You just record that as a course, probably not in one 60-minute recording. I think right. that might be a call, but maybe, maybe let's say there's like four lessons inside your talk and just make four short videos 
and make it a course. And sure, you could give it away for free if you're trying to build an email list at first, but you could also, you know, come up with a reasonable amount for that, maybe a hundred bucks or something for an hour long course is it's pretty standard kind of in the webinar world. So I definitely recommend people start really, really small. So that's really helpful. I, I know you've always talked about recycling your content and I, I, now I realize I don't do that very well because I've got this perfect demonstration session I did at AEA, I think in 2018. It, it was the first time I'd done like a demonstration or workshop type session. It was on how to survey children, like best practices for surveying children, because there's really not much out there. And it was based on my thesis. So I had this lit review already a little bit going and it was like taking Dillman's principles, but then applying it to the youth context. And people ate it up and yeah, that would be a perfect one. Maybe build it up a little bit more, but it could be pretty ready to go. And that's, that actually really excites me that I could put together. So thank you. I bet your slides are 90% done. Of course, you're going to look back at your slides because we're all our own worst critics. And you're going to be like, oh, I feel like that font should be a little bigger or whatever you criticize yourself on. I bet your slides are 90% done. I bet you remembered 90% of your speaking points. I bet you have clear breaks in your presentation by topics where you could just record, you know, this 10 minutes and then this 10 minutes and this 10 minutes. You could um, make it interactive just like you would a regular conference presentation, not just like wait till the end when you're talking at people for an hour. Does anybody have any questions? Like not just that, but I bet you could add questions throughout like, okay, and comment below the video if blah, 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 blah. And then under this video, okay, go try this yourself and then come back if you have any questions or exactly. come back and reflect on this. So you add little opportunities for them to interact in an online setting. And I bet you could do that. It would probably be half a day if that, because I know you've already recorded yourself online through your professor position. You already know how to do podcasts. You're, it's going to be really easy for you to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I feel like Chris Lessie taught me about recycling content too, because he was saying, what a shame that we all fly to conferences and we spend all this amazing time prepping our presentations. We have amazing learning for a couple days and then we go home and learning doesn't have to stop. What if we also write a blog post with key takeaways from our session? You know, So at the bare minimum, writing a blog post, but it could also be a video course. Yeah, that would be a great topic. I would enroll in that course. I would love to hear about that. Oh, that's awesome. That makes me feel good because I've always kind of wondered, like, what would I, what would I do, you know? Um, And that's something that's very, you know, very specific, which I Mm -hmm. think is helpful um, that I think I can teach on fairly well. And you're right. I've got most of it already there. And yeah, I, I wish more people would blog and I mean, not necessarily podcasts, but I love listening to podcasts. The more of those, please. Um, And, you know, share their resources and stuff. I'm, that's like the biggest, like the reason I blog is to share all this out. And I just makes me sad when people feel like they need to like hoard their information and never share anything for either fear or, you know, this idea that it's, I don't know. I, I just want to share everything. Like I want to, I want to learn something and then share it because why should I, why should everybody do the same work over and over and over again? Right. Instead we could, you could take what I've done, which is why I love creative commons, take what I've done and make something more of it. You know, there's definitely a misconception in the consulting space where if you share your perfect expertise and knowledge in a blog post, 
other consultants will steal it or nobody will hire you. I have had the exact opposite experience. I truly find the more of my tips and tricks I share online, the more business I bring in because maybe one person in a company or I work a lot with federal agencies, foundations, large nonprofits, universities too. One person from their team will be on my newsletter list and they've followed my blog for maybe a couple of years. Maybe they've seen me speak at a conference. Well, they want everybody else on their team to benefit. So when it's time to bring in a speaker and have you know a professional development day on a workshop, they're like, oh, Anne, you know about this. Can you come in? And like then everybody on their team gets to benefit. I get to keep a roof over my head. Like everybody wins. I have never lost business because of something I've shared online. Like I'm giving away all my knowledge. That's simply not the case. I also just think it it leads to so much life satisfaction. I one of my mm-hmm. favorite books of all time. I mentioned Company of One by Paul Jarvis. That's a great one for people considering self-employment to just kind of get your mindset and think about are you a freelancer? Are you a company? Are you an entrepreneur? Like what is your identity and stance? But another really good one, you're gonna have a whole reading list. <laughs> you don't have okay. this one is Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin. And it's a financial book, kind of. It's really about life purpose and making sure that your limited days that you're alive are spent really well, making the world a better place. And that you're not just consuming, that you're not just giving yourself temporary happiness by like, I bought a purse. I went on a vacation for a week and you were happy for that week, but that you're giving yourself lasting satisfaction by creating rather than consuming. And she has all these very compelling research studies on how truly like the tippy top of ultimate happiness is giving to others, being of service to other people. And that's why I love teaching too, because it's like, you just clearly see the impact that you have on helping other people out and you get to stay in business while you do it. It's it's just such a natural path. So I highly recommend teaching online for people who are on the fence and just starting really, really small, like with your conference survey. Yeah, that um, that book sounds amazing. I've been thinking a lot. Uh, Libby Smith um, has been, you know, guiding people through thinking about interpersonal skills and values. And you know, we did a breathwork session together with her. And uh, I've just been really thinking about how important. And I knew this, but I just haven't sat down and really done it. Still, of like sitting down and writing out what your values are and then really thinking critically about how the work you're doing aligns with those values. And I I mean, I, it's, it's the conflicts I've been having with some people and some situations that have really highlighted to me is like, you know, open science and sharing my stuff and all of that. That is a huge value of mine. Like that is, and perhaps my purpose, right. Of just being, you know, somebody who shares, I was listening to this great pod. Are you familiar with any of Octavia Butler's books? No, not yet. It's so she, um, she wrote a lot of sci-fi books, um, uh, really fantastic books. Um, and, uh, I'm listening to this podcast, um, on her parables that she wrote and they're, I'm reading the books as I'm listening to this podcast, they go chapter by chapter. It's really cool. But they had this, um, conversation about what it means to be a leader. And I just, I was in love with this conversation and this idea of like being a leader is not to bring yourself up. It's to have other people get into your place. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's, they had this idea of like be a tree, be this beautiful tree and then have everybody reap what you've sown, right? Like take from your tree, 
mine you. And I'm like, yes, that's like, that's exactly what I want. Like, I want to be somebody that they take from me, you know, like, I don't think you can take it enough from me that I'm like left empty. You know, I don't think that's possible. So I, I, I've loved that idea of what it meant to, means to be like a person. That's a mindset shift that I had a few years ago where I used to have the scarcity mindset of, well, if, if I don't accept this one project, even if it's not a perfect fit, maybe the client will never hire me again. And what if I never get to work with that really cool group whose work I believe Mm -hmm. in and support ever again, like the opportunity might be lost. And then I transformed very slowly bit 1% at a time into an abundance mindset of there's plenty of work to go around. There's plenty of people to help. It's not like if you help somebody else, your career goes down the toilet. It's not that. It's just that you have this amazing network of really talented, hardworking people around you that you get to collaborate with and be peers with. And I know we've talked a couple of times how you're like, whoa, you share a lot of your life online. Like that's really unique because I didn't used to be that way. Right. I used to be very, Libby Smith and I have talked about this in, in Breathwork too of like, I used to have, there was professional Anne and there was personal Anne and professional Anne wore suits to work and heels and worked by the White House. And, you know, I just, I would talk to my coworkers a little bit, but we weren't like, I wasn't sharing everything about my life with them. And then personal Anne rode motorcycles across the country with her husband. And like, you know, I was, I felt like this pull between this type A personality and this like hippie child who was my (laughs) own person. And that's a really weird tension to have. And I just thought, okay, I, like at some point in my life, I'm going to have to merge those two and just be myself all the time. But when I finally got the courage to do that and share many things about my life, I share 99% of how I'm feeling on my Insta stories all day. I don't filter myself at all. Devin Wisner, who you know too, he was like, how do you decide what to share online? How do you think about it? What's your strategy? And I was like, I don't. I don't think about it. That is my strategy of just being myself. And he was like, surely you have some master plan or logic model. I was like, I don't. But the tipping point for me, you were talking about leadership. And I started getting emails from other women in data, evaluators, researchers, scientists, university professors. And they would say, I was I, I didn't know if I could ever blog. I didn't know if I had anything worth sharing. I didn't know how people would react to my ideas. I was thinking about maybe starting a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel, all these amazing things people have created over the years. I was on the fence, but I saw you doing it. And I thought, if Anne can do that, maybe I can do it too. And, it, and like I get these emails almost every single day now of people saying like, wow, you have kids and you have a career. I was hesitant. I didn't know if I could have kids with my demanding job, but like you do it. And I just feel like I have the courage now. And I just felt like for about a year in there, I hated those emails to be honest, because I felt like I had this big responsibility. Like I didn't ask for this. Mm -hmm. I didn't ever want to be well known. I just wanted to teach people about data. I was never like, I'm going to have a billion subscribers. Like that was never the goal. I only have 600 Instagram subscribers. Like clearly it's not a goal to grow an audience on there. It's just not a thing for me. But I, I just felt really reluctantly placed, like, you know, have these people put me on a pedestal? The what's, what happens after you get put on a pedestal? You topple off, you disappoint them somehow. Like I didn't want to be this role model for women in data of like, you can have a career and you can also have a family. I didn't ask for that. 
but here I am. People have already like created this. And I thought, okay, well, I owe it to them to be a leader for them and be a role model and share with them on social media, on my blog, not just the great parts of working for yourself, but also the not so great parts. I mean, if you follow my Insta stories, you know, I hate invoicing. I'm yep. so bad at it. I, I have so many hiccups with invoicing. I send an invoice. I got a, a check bounced back the other day from a federal agency. It said insufficient funds. Well, who pays the $30 bank fee? I do. The federal agency doesn't pay that. I have to follow up. Like every invoice like that has a hiccup. You know, it's not just like you send an invoice and you get paid. It's, it's just like this whole to do. And you have a million small projects like I do. I'm horrible at it. It's not a priority, but I share that online because I want people to know, yes, most of my life is very good because I've designed it this way, but it's, there are crappy parts too. And I want people to know the reality of that. Like we all have bad days in business and life sometimes too. So yeah, I love that you're embracing the leadership role and it doesn't take away from our careers at all. We just have this, you know, it's the women supporting women type of vibe that helps everybody out. I wonder if like the sharing more of the personal side helps humanize you more and so that people aren't necessarily putting you on a pedestal, you know, because I definitely don't want to be put on the pedestal because every single person I've ever put on a pedestal in my life has toppled and I try very hard not to put people there anymore. I'll admire people, but I will never think of them as like this perfect human being anymore yeah. because yeah, they all, they all topple and then it's painful Yeah, probably for them they, if they know that I've put them there, but definitely for me, you know, like yeah. especially people who are very close to me who yeah. toppled down. Like I, if you need somebody good to follow on Instagram, who is at the top of her career game, but also is so real. There's a, I was just following her stories this morning. Farnoosh Tarabi is a finance expert. I'm really big into finance. That's going to be my next career. Maybe I'll do like retirement investing or helping people with their money. Maybe it's, I love data. You can tell I'm a data and graphs person, <laughs> right? At my core. So Farnoosh Tarabi is, she's written New York Times bestselling books. She was getting ready for, I think it was the Today Show this morning, not to be in person, but she's getting her little office set up perfect, you know, so she can be on camera in front of how many millions of people. But then her next story is like, oh crap, I drew in my eyebrows and they're asymmetrical or, oh, I've got to fill in my lips. So I look like I'm awake, even though it's 5 a.m. as, you know, and all oh, my kids are crying and throwing a tantrum. And she just, she's this amazing professional woman who has so much expertise, but she's also a real person and that's okay. And it just makes me love her more because I'm learning not just about finance, but I'm learning like, what is it like behind the scenes to be a top career woman? What does that look like to be an author? I'm very curious. And like the more she shares, the more I want to follow her and the more I admire her really of just being herself online is, is for me is very admirable. I'll definitely have to follow her. So uh, I, we have like a ton of questions that I think you both also wrote down um, that I want to get to and we are running out of time. So one of them was, um, what kind of tips do you have for those of us teaching in this virtual world now? Um, so I'm teaching three classes online this semester, and I am not going to be surprised when we have to pivot fully online throughout the semester, given what's going on at universities around the world. But so I think a lot of us are kind of in this virtual stage. What tips do you have? Well, what does your semester look like right now? So are you doing live teaching or is it recorded teaching? What's the setup? All over the place. So okay. one class is completely um, 
I'm taking advantage of more of the textbook resources just because time is, I only have so much of it. Um, but I will record some videos, particularly like weekly introduction videos to, to guide them through what to expect for the week. Um, and then I have two that are half synchronous. So half we meet in person, like in person online, um, and half we meet, they, they do stuff on their own. So those courses are going to have a lot more videos associated with them. And then one that's technically in person, but uh, I do plan on having more online components, which will include online lecture videos as well. So I will be recording a lot of lecture videos, a lot of guidance videos, um, a lot of FAQ type videos, like you were talking about that you did early in your career. I think there's this misconception that every video has to be perfect if it's recorded and that to be professional, we all want to be professional. We want to bring our best selves. Of course, you know, we all have high standards for ourselves, but that somehow being professional means that this is what my earliest videos look like. I would have perfect posture and I would maybe sit like very professionally in my chair and I wouldn't move. I would just sit up straight like a robot and I had to have the perfect speaking points. And I, I used to think I can't say um or like or so or hmm. And I just, I had this weird pressure on myself. I don't know where this came from. My image of what it meant to be a good professor was like, hello, I'm Anne Emery. And today we're going to be talking about X, Y, and Z. Okay, let's dive into topic one. Here we go. And I just would like, talk trying to have this perfect rehearsed voice and I didn't write out scripts and I'm a fan of not writing out scripts I'm a fan of planning in bullet point form so you're not all over the place of course you need to have an outline of here are the topics I'm covering but I don't recommend reading off a script I don't recommend sounding like you're reading off a script I used to have kind of this script more or less in my head and then it would be like la 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 I am this robot person I don't think that's professional. I think that, in fact, that's very unprofessional and poor presenting. And I have tried, when I've done my recorded lessons for my courses, I have tried both approaches. Approach A, the show must go on. You do one take, you record it. I have also tried approach B, where now that I kind of have video editing skills, I have kindergarten level Camtasia editing skills. Once I kind of learned Camtasia, I thought, oh, I could record and every paragraph or so, if I fumble or I have too many ums, I'll just edit the recording later and make it sound perfect. Well, that takes five times longer and you end up sounding like a robot at the end and you're judging yourself the whole time thinking, oh, I'm going to edit that out. I'm going to have to edit this out. And it sounds horrible for the audience because you're like awkward and try to be perfect. So I highly recommend option A, you do one take with the show must go on mentality because if you were teaching live, Dana, that's how it would be. Anybody who has in-person teaching experience and you're just leading a class if you cough in the middle, I mean, if you're like having a coughing fit, yes, stop and re-record. But, you know, if, uh, what was I recording the other day? This is when we were like renting places in Florida before we settled down and bought a house again. It was Friday afternoon. My husband took the kids out to the playground so I could have an hour or two of recording time of, of quiet. That was the goal. But it's Friday And the neighbors in this other duplex in this vacation community where we're renting, they start having a pool party (laughs) and they're blasting their speakers. And I'm thinking, come on, I've got like an hour to get this done. It's like an hour of recording of it. I only have time to do one take or else I'm going to have to wait till Monday and my to-do list on Monday is already long. 
So I just had to joke about it in the video. And I was like, you guys, can you hear the music outside? Can you believe what just happened? Comment if you can hear the music. Comment if you know what song it is. I just had to make a joke about it. And everybody's commented on it. And they're like, oh, I could hear the music. It, you know, it sounds like some type of techno song. And like people are just <laughs> laughing. Like This is the funniest lesson I've ever heard. And I think... So it's not only is it faster for you as a presenter just to say, okay, I'm going to do it once. I'm going to be myself. Whatever hiccup happens, happens. I'm going to deal with it just like I would in your regular classroom. You just have to deal with it. It's also going to be so much more human for people listening and they just connect with you. It's not like they're just watching a textbook being read to them, but they're learning from you as a well-rounded human being. So I think for any professors who have to teach online and do recordings, try to be yourself, try to not be perfect and just press record. I use uh, Screencast-O-Matic. It's a whopping $19 a year. There are fancier programs out there. I don't like fancy. I like simple. Just press record and you just do it. Yeah. Just go for it and give yourself permission to be you. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, that's, that is the mentality I'm trying to take because we don't have the time. I don't have the time. I'm teaching four classes this semester, all unique classes. I've got multiple research projects. I've got other things on the plate. Like I just don't have the time to make these perfect videos. And you're right. They're not perfect. in like when I'm standing in front of the lecture and in front of the classroom either. So why should they be perfect when they're recorded? I also, I don't know if you've heard of her, Karen Costa, Costa? She no. just wrote a really great book. She's more in the higher ed community. Uh, she wrote a really great book on 99 tips for sustainable videos or something like that. That's the title. And it literally is 99 tips, each one. And some of the big ones that I just remember is like, make sure your videos are sustainable in that you can reuse them from semester to semester. So be sure like um, if you're introducing the week and this is how you think you're going to teach it the next semester, don't talk about specific dates. You know, if yep. you think the deadlines might change to say they're due, you know, make sure you follow the deadline that's available on Canvas or whatever your learning management system is. And that's been helpful. And she has the same, same mentality, right? Like it doesn't, it shouldn't be perfect, you know, be human and help build that connection with your students. So like when I was, I was recording videos yesterday and they're awful, uh, or at least they feel awful to me. And um, my cat uh, loves to be right here on my desk. Um, which is of course in front of the monitor so I can't see. And then sometimes her tail gets right in front of the webcam. And I was just like, well, my cat has decided to join us. And so I moved the webcam so they can see the cat, you know, it's like, yep. I, I told them straight up, my cat and my dog are going to join us. And they joined us for all my videos. So the cat got in one dog got in the other. And so I get to introduce them. And then they're like, oh, yay. You know, I'm, I am a human being. I'm not this like robot professor that is not human and doesn't have yeah. a life. That's real life right now. Think of, I'm so lucky because my husband's a stay-at-home dad, so I'm not also doing virtual school plus trying to mm -hmm. do work. But many, many parents out there are trying to do virtual school plus they both work. Like that is, I don't know how they're doing it. They're all superstars. My heart goes out to them. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality. That's the reality for a while now. A lot of schools for the 2020, 2021 school year are just like, we're all virtual. So I think acting as if you have this perfect, you know, home office where you don't get any interruptions from your pet or your neighbor never blasts music at their pool outside. That's just not real life. And it's not helping anybody watching because they're just going to feel bad about themselves. Like, well, Dana and Anne have this perfect setup with no interruptions. I'm so jealous. Meanwhile, 
you know, my kids doing like virtual first grade over there and my dog sparking. It's just, it's not helping people. This is such a horrible year for every single person. Everybody's life has been turned upside down. It's like, this is the year to bring out your compassion and your empathy more than yep. ever. Definitely. And if you can just be yourself, it's like helping people in ways that you might not even realize yet. Yeah. And I, it, it's a hope of mine that that is what higher education is taking away from this. I, as a result of having to pivot online last semester, I basically dropped my late policy. And then as I was preparing for this semester, I just kept thinking, why do I have a late policy in the first place? There are some assignments that, yeah, they do need to be turned in on time for a variety of reasons, right? Because you have to do X before I can do Y or something like that. Or everybody needs to do X before we can move on to this next component in the course. Or like, especially discussion boards, right? Like if you don't contribute and you come in a month later, you've lost the conversation. So there are some assignments that need a late policy. But other than that, it's like late, like deadlines don't really exist in the real world. They do and they don't, you know, and there, there are some deadlines. And so you have to keep that in mind. But oftentimes, if you ask for that extension, people are willing to grant that. And if they're not, they're probably jerks you don't want to be working for or with anyways. So I'm hoping people are a bit more compassionate through that. I have definitely felt more compassionate. And my, my word for this semester, I actually have like a little um, Brene Brene Brown quotes sticking on my thing on connection and like, like how important that's like my word for the semester It's like my goal is to build connection with my students, even for the ones that I'm never going to meet in person, or at least not this semester. So, yeah, I would love to talk just a little bit about travel, because I know you at least did a lot of travel before COVID-19 hit. Um, so I'm wondering, like, how you got into it, like, why you did it, how you were able to do it, like, how that worked. I know uh, I'm very jealous, and um, fingers crossed this will also work for us, but my husband is currently the stay-at-home um, husband, and hopefully in the future, the stay-at-home dad as well. So I think that helps, but I'm curious, like, how this process works for you and how others with this dream of traveling either for or outside of work can do this as well. This could be a whole nother podcast. Okay. Here's the, the 30 second answer. So I'm starting year seven of working for myself, but in what year one, we decided to have kids right away. It was actually a week later. I started working for myself a week later. My husband turned 30 and he was like, I'm ready to be a dad now. And I was like, no, no, no the life path was zero kids. We're on the zero kids path. That's what we'd always agree to. We were high school sweethearts. So like that was always a plan. It'll be us and we'll have this great life. And like, we just, I never, I never saw kids in the picture. Well, he changed his mind and I took a little bit of convincing, but you know, then we had a kid right away. Great decision. I love her to pieces. I wish I would have had her sooner in life. It wasn't possible. I was in grad school and working the logistics and finances of it never would have worked out, but I've always had work and kids together. And then you add number kid number two to the mix. And after a while, you're just, you're, you have these great data visualization workshops that you're traveling for every single week, sometimes twice a week, I'd go to two cities in a row or something. And I thought this is this amazing dream career, but I'd kind of just prefer to be home for bath time. I just want to see my family and I don't just want to see them once in a while. I want to see them all the time. So I just got to this point where I felt like I kind of had to pick, like, am I just going to quit my job and be a stay at home mom? I didn't want to do that. Teaching data viz is my purpose in life and my passion. But I also like, I want to just 
be away from my family. That didn't work. So it was felt very logical to us. It sounds crazy to other people. It's going to sound crazy to people listening to this, but we thought, what if my husband just quits his job? He had a very good federal government job. We had to give up a pension. We gave up a top secret security clearance. We gave up his 10 years of experience, his college education for that. Like we gave up his career. That was a a year-long discussion of whether we should do that or not. That's not a one-day, like that's a big decision. We decided he should give up his career. And if we're going to be traveling all the time, like they would come along on my work trips, why have a house? We're not going to be there. Why pay bills on someplace we're going to be, you know, a day a week? What's the point? It just didn't seem practical to own things. So we sold our house. We had, you know, I we sold our mattress out from under us. Like we, we sold it all. I worked at the dining room table for a month and then on the floor because we sold all my office furniture <laughs> and the family came along and we traveled for this perfect year until COVID, you know, till COVID flipped everything upside down. It didn't, it wasn't safe to travel anymore. I know people are traveling here and there again. I'm not, I'm not willing to take that risk or put other yeah. people at risk. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of like staying put. Let's do physical distancing. Let's do masks and everything. Um, yeah, we had this like wonderful travel year though. We would have traveled for two years until our daughter started kindergarten if we could, but it was great while it lasted. I'm glad we took advantage of the opportunity while we could. So we just got a few minutes and I've got to wrap up. So I'm just going to do my closing questions and I'm sorry we didn't get to some of the other questions you had planned out. I'm like, uh, I, I keep like extending the amount of time I give for recording these episodes and it's never enough. So So to close off, I would like to ask two questions. One is one I ask everybody, what is something in evaluation that is giving you life right now? Ooh, I've got two. I would say the first one, evaluators who are never into cultural competence or racial equity are getting into it now and really taking the topic seriously thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement. That's Mm -hmm. so exciting for me to see all of those aha moments going on and people recognizing that like, yeah, white people have been privileged a long time and it's our responsibility to do something about that. And then the second one I'd say that's giving me life is that, you know, 10 years ago when I gave that dashboard presentation at AEA and I said, hey, what if we have a technical report, but we also have a one pager about each of these schools that we're evaluating? That was groundbreaking at the time to do anything beyond the technical report. That's not the case anymore. I look around and I see evaluators making one pagers and slideshows and infographics and dashboards and really thinking so carefully about what stakeholders can actually use to inform decisions and make better programs. And, you know, that's only in 10 years that that huge shift has happened. So it just makes me really hopeful to think like, what's next? What does the next 10 years have in store for evaluation? Oh, that's so exciting. I cannot think of that type of question of like future orientation question, but I am excited to see what happens in the next 10 years as well. So do you have any last minute comments that you'd like to make um, and then, or resources that you'd like to share? And then lastly, if anything, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, what would be the best way they can find you beyond Instagram and following your great Instagram stories? Yeah. On Instagram, I'm my full name spelled out, Anne K. Emery. And I'd say a resource and a way to stay in touch is probably that mini course that I mentioned that I built, you know, back in 2018 that I've since revamped and I'm so proud of it now. It's called Soar Beyond the Dusty Shelf Report. It's really a mindset course to get you thinking about what impact, if any, are your reports having now or slideshows. It's not just reports that end up being dusty and sitting on a shelf. Like what about your infographics or your dashboards or your slideshows really evaluating what impact, if any, they have. 
giving examples to people to people of what's possible and then sharing some tried and true tips like the 33-1 approach or data storytelling to making sure their data really does get out into the world. And that course is really easy to sign up for. So if you just go to my website, depictdatastudio.com, depict is D-E-P-I-C-T, depictdatastudio.com, there's a link to click on online courses and then you'll see Soar Beyond the Dusty Shelf Report. Perfect. And we'll definitely link that in the show notes. So Anne, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time chatting with you about all these topics. It was great to see you, Dana. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm, where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland.